Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Officer Navarro's sister, Julia, is increasingly hearing a spooky call that has her attempting to follow it out onto the ice and into the sea. In this episode, she can no longer resist the urge and leaves the treatment facility to drown herself in the Arctic Ocean. This sends Navarro spiraling into violence and ultimately fatalism, worrying that it's only a matter of time before she too is forced to hear the same call. Meanwhile, Chief Danvers is facing down her own demons, with the missing men and women under eerie circumstances and the pressures of the case driving her to drink and engage in self-destructive behavior. Both women are united once again with a hot tip by the local fisherman that a strange man wearing a pink parka is seen at the abandoned gold dredges on the outskirts of Venice. Investigating the dredges, Danvers finds Otis Heiss, a man who Peter had previously identified as suffering similar injuries uh, over 20 years ago as the men from the Salal station, including burnt corneas, ruptured eardrums, and self-inflicted bite wounds. His mind seems to be gone as all he can do is rave about the night country. Navarro, however, finds disturbing visions of her dead sister, and Danvers finds her by the end of the episode in a catatonic state with blood trickling from her ears. From the dusty mesa, her looming shadow Welcome to The World We Deserve, the officially unofficial podcast for True Detective on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking season four, episode four, uh, Night Country, part four. Aaron, you had a couple days to sit with the episode. Hopefully your brain is a little less fogged. I know I'm feeling a little bit better. What do you think of this episode? It is a good episode, and much like some of the middle episodes of season one of True Detective, uh, there's there's not a lot of movement on the case. We got far more information about the the detectives investigating um, than we did about new, truly new information. But also, all that stuff kind of ties back together too. Like I think you're supposed to understand that you know, some of the creepy stuff going on personally is probably going to connect back to the case. Um, I continue to be impressed with like uh, the, the, the characters and the acting. I was particularly impressed that they made me feel sorry for Hank. I was like starting off very much Nelson from the Simpsons. Ha ha out of all of his bullshit. But by the time he's staring catatonic at his camouflaged bed sheets covered in rose petals, I'm like, oh man, he really... You really, you really invested. You invest a lot. And in fact, like on se- subsequent watches, I got that. He, I don't think he's seen this woman. I don't think he's seen. He's like he's getting cat. He's getting catfish sight un, unseen. No photos. No photos. Why else would he like have this kind of like expectant smile when the stewardess is looking like she's going to get off? Like he. Like, like he's like that. That might be her. And I he don't needs think glasses. He knows. And she's also Maybe. blonde. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a good point. That's a good point. Uh, so I, I just like I think it's a it's a pretty good episode when uh, they can they can make you feel sympathetic to a, just a shit person like Hank. 
Uh, what'd you think? Boy, that's an extra level of desperation, huh? I mean, it speaks to kind of the one of the big themes of this season is loneliness, and they, they really yeah. came through this episode. Just everybody being being lonely, you know? Uh, that's what Navarro says. She asks uh, Kavik, you know, why are you alone? Talking about life. Uh, he claims that he's not, because I, I think he thinks he's got her. Um yeah, I, I, I like this episode. I One of the things I've appreciated as of this episode is the way they've been telling this story is remarkably subtle in a lot of areas. Like, I think of the stuff we think we know, and, and, and the, the more we see, the more the stuff we think we know turns out to be true, which means they've dropped really successful little hints along the way, like... I think yeah. this episode does a lo- goes a long way to say that Liz has a drinking problem or had a drinking problem. Mm. Tough to say. Um, it, there are a couple little details we could talk about maybe when we get to her. Um, there are a lot of things that we suspected, like Hank was getting catfished. We just kind of, mm. you just kind of feel that. It's nothing that they explicitly spell out, but we kind of picked it up as we went and it turned out to be true that, that, uh, fight with the hillbillies last episode that was caused by a shooting it like uh, all, all the little crumbs they're putting down we're absolutely sniffing out and i feel like that's a really elegant way to tell this story yeah um, i agree so they're, they're doing a really good job there like like the show has not come out and said oh liz lost pete or not not pete um jake and and uh, connor's connor's Connolly. what Holden, yeah. I was close. Connelly. I was close. <laughs> yeah, she's like not two or lost. Three lives, right? Uh, <laughs> that they've lost. That they, she lost this to a drunk driving accident. But it's never. It's never come out and said. And then mm-hmm. you're supposed to. But if. But if you haven't gotten that from the storytelling, then you know alarm bells not be, might not be flashing about her drinking and driving like an asshole. Um, right. You know, and but but like also Connolly's reaction to like, did you drive here? Like, you know, you're supposed to understand that this is pretty transgressive behavior. Stacy Chalmers, Stacy fucking Chalmers probably only ex- exists to show that she has a mm-hmm. special antipathy towards people with these. So it's like it's 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 giving insights into her emotional state. Uh, yeah. And it's like the epitome of show uh, don't tell storytelling. Um, I think so. Yeah. And as she spirals further down, she sort of leans into those behaviors. Um, yeah. They're unhealthy. And, and yeah, I, I think it's been told really well. Um, that theme of loneliness really comes across in this episode, you know, yeah. overtly. But also it, there, there's a character who says the line, but there's also just a lot of loneliness happening on screen. I mean, Hank, desperate. I mean, like I said, how desperate do you have to be to marry someone sight unseen? from another yeah. country you've never met them you've just chatted on the phone he's desperately lonely uh so is liz and and like that scene with the the turkey that she dumps in the trash can that's desperate loneliness is what that is yeah and uh, even pete who is married and has a, a beautiful young family like it's uh-huh. hard to show a lonelier scene than him and his wife laying in the bed with their yeah backs to each other and about 17 feet between them i don't know how you do that in a queen size bed <laughs> the but, only uh, way you can do it more intensely is the way better call saul did it which is you actually do a split screen uh mm. and then they end up in the same bed with a split screen dividing the bed mm-hmm. uh 
yeah, it is. Uh, it, I, I was going to make that joke for the the Hank thing you men you mentioned that it's it's hard to achieve the level of sweaty desperation in the freezing cold night country, but yet uh-huh. Hank manages to do it. He is he's he's yeah. got that, and you're you're right. Liz dumping the chicken, or I'm sorry, the turkey had the. A similar kind of feel. So there's, yeah, a lot of uh, our detectives feel like their backs are against a wall for very different reasons. You know, mm-hmm. Navarro feels like she is succumbing to this family curse. Liz feels like her life is spiraling out of control. There's a referendum on her being a police person. Um, kind of the things she's struggling with are starting to really sandbagger and uh, all in the backdrop of this, uh, this, this, this crazy mystery they're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed this episode. I will say before we go much further, because it's been kind of like we've gotten conflicting reports, it's confirmed. It's confirmed now that they are not skipping a week for the Super Bowl. However, much like they did for The Last of Us last season, they are going to release on Max online uh, the new episode on Friday night. It's virtual Sunday night at HBO. They're releasing that uh, on Max. Uh, and then HBO will be airing it Sunday at its regular time. I imagine most true fans of True Detective are going to be watching Friday night. Unfortunately, because of some travel issues with Jim and some previous commitments that I've made, this completely fucks up our instant take schedule. Um, We are not going to be able to do instant take on Friday night. Uh, And maybe we could do it on Sunday, but at that point, I feel like it's almost pointless. You know, most people who have watched it are going to go ahead and watch it. So instead, we'll just have our our full podcast out on Tuesday. Uh, Mm -hmm. I apologize for that because I do like to do this stuff with the club members. And I do. I'm I'm really looking forward to talking it over with you all. It's just uh, I I, I had a a pre-existing commitment before I found all this stuff out. And Jim had some travel anyway. So. If it was just one of us gone, we probably would figure out a way to make it happen. But when you got both both Jim and I gone, what the hell is, is even a bald move podcast? You know? Yeah. Uh, Bring in uh, two if, guests. If, if neither of us. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> like you do. Hey, I mean, if we got away with it, uh, I hate to tell you, we we it'd be hard to get us back. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> if we could if we could just uh, put put some cardboard cutouts out here and be done with it, uh, mm-hmm. that'd be tempting. But yeah, I just want to just reiterate again, uh, we will not be having an instant take this week. We will have an instant take for the finale. And I've heard through the grapevine that these last two episodes are what you'd call bangers. Like, kind of have really... to be, because if they're not, the story won't be told. True, true. <laughs> you know? um, but I mean, I think you'd wrap up the mystery in a satisfying way, but like I've, I've heard them been described as like they kind of like bring the whole season together and are pretty... Bro- bravara bravara um okay yeah they're 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 the type of episode you want to you want to stand up and clap at the end so i'm excited for that i'm pretty excited to see how it all comes together yeah me too all right where do you want to start we've been leading with the mystery but since the mystery kind of took a back seat i thought we would kind of uh, follow along with the true detectives and kind of back our way into it uh and let's start with evangeline because the big big news here is the stuff with her sister. Um, this Is this the most depressing piece of Christmas content that you've consumed? Is this going to be a yeah. uh, Jones family Christmas staple? <laughs> you just can't wait to rewatch this, you know, maybe mm-hmm. on Christmas Eve. Yeah, maybe, maybe 
a whole Christmas season. I mean, why not? Uh, no, this, this is, yeah, incredibly depressing. I mean, it's hard for me to think of a Christmas-themed anything where somebody's sister takes their own life. Yeah. I was say, Paul Giamatti's All is Bright is pretty bleak in pieces, but mm-hmm. in that your sister drowns herself because of no. a family curse bleak. <laughs> but that makes it worse, right? That like you've got, you know, this uh-huh. is the time, uh, you know, it's, it's a time of darkness, but you got the artificial light so that uh, you, you kind of perk things up and you're supposed to be spending time with family. And I mean, I think that that really hammers the isolation home. The fact yeah. that like, you know, culturally, this is supposed to be a time to come together with your family and, and, and love and understanding, empathy and for these these ladies, it's it's not coming for nobody. Uh, I mean, the, the thing that they're doing between sort of the the culture of uh, the indigenous peoples and the culture that uh, I guess the latecomers to Alaska are bringing is really mm-hmm. evident in those scenes because you've got a whole bunch of people here who are not involved in that culture and they are experiencing extreme loneliness, and then you've got this kind of beautiful scene making bread or whatever they're making uh, biscuits in the kitchen with these three native women. So yeah, they're, they're definitely like reinforcing that theme, the, the connection to that spirituality connection to each other, as opposed to the loneliness and isolation you feel when you don't think there's God, you don't uh, have anybody else in your life. Yeah. It's pretty depressing. Yeah. And it made me think of um, because there's this on the official podcast, they had um, a native gentleman that was talking about the legends and and the religion of the uh, Anupiak or Anupik, Mm -hmm. I think is how it seems like the 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 natives are pronouncing it. Um, And he, he points out that, like, you know, that these these beliefs are like embedded in the people's DNA and it's kind of like been tried to beat out of them by. Uh, the 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 Europeans coming to you know spread Christianity and whatnot, and it's like I you know obviously I don't know about the whole DNA of it, but I do you know it's like as I've learned more about religion across the globe, it seems like it's there to kind of like help people, and like it's like very particular to a a, a place. You know, you might if you if you live down in the mountains, you might worship mountains, and if you live in a cold environment, you might have a different relationship than you do in a hot environment. And it seems like you know Christianity is something that spawns from the Middle East. It's like just doesn't fit in places that are like cold and dark for like half the year. Like the the mm-hmm. mythology has nothing to say about uh like what if the world is swallowed in darkness for six months out of the year. It's it's not suited for its task. Um, mm. I, I I thought that it's, it's it, that, that I felt like they were kind of getting at that in this episode. Um, but Julie, yeah, she's having um. You know, Navarro's got a lot. She's clearly agitated by the idea that Connolly might come and like take this whole thing away from them. And by the way, the women are behaving in this episode. I could totally see the larger jurisdiction, more experienced uh, male cop coming in and be like, "This is insane, taking you guys off the case." Mm-hmm. Jur- you know, I'm I'm exerting my jurisdiction. Um, but also that Julia's just be coming to a head, and um, I was a little surprised that. You know, Liz shows up to kind of like rescue her at the beginning of the episode, and before the episode even has half it, it, its runtime half expend, expanded, she's going to find a way to kill herself. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, not even the lighthouse could save her uh, at this point. Yeah, and that's um, 
you know, she's kind of the counterpoint to all of this, uh, the stuff that I just talked about with yeah. the show depicting, you know, the, the indigenous people's culture as something that is, you know, communal and reinforcing. She's experiencing a very different kind of thing. And I don't mm-hmm. know why that is. Um, I don't know if they're trying to say, yes, this person is just mentally ill or that it runs in their family and they all are, or if they're trying to do something to show kind of both sides of that. Like it's, it's a blessing and a curse. I thought it's interesting because the official podcast, it seems like the, and who knows, because again, showrunners are storytellers uh, and they get paid to do it, which is another way of saying they're professional liars. So she could be saying stuff in these interviews that are deliberately misleading. But one thing I thought was interesting is she called back to what Rose said about you mustn't confuse the supernatural and the uh, afterlife for mental illness. Mm -hmm. And Issa Lopez called that back to specifically talk about uh, Julia. And it feels to me like she is putting her thumb on the scale of rationality and be like, you know, she thinks she's seeing this. She thinks she's experiencing. She's think, um, but she didn't use that language when it comes to Navarro. So is it possible that like, yeah, Julia is mentally ill, but Navarro's got the gift like Rose does. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. And she I doesn't see use the- that language with with Rose either, right? I mean, right, right. So. Yeah, I, I I do feel like they're trying to say something where this is something to be respected and feared. Because yeah. um, that whole the thing that rings uh, in my head when I look at this stuff is what Rose says about the three types of uh, spirits: mm-hmm. the ones that want to tell you something, the ones that want to uh, I guess see you again, and the ones that want to take you. I forget exactly what they are, but. Mm-hmm. It feels like there are different experiences for different people in regard to this spirituality stuff. And I don't know if that's her saying, yes, there are literally three. We've we've cataloged them and we know this. and Or, or if she's saying, like, people experience, have a different relationship with the spirituality of this place and this culture. And it can be healthy or unhealthy, just depending on your viewpoint. I was about to say something similar that like, you know, from a therapeutic standpoint, like a therapist or a psychologist would say the difference between like a quirk or just the myriad of things that makes you you and different and distinct from the other people. And uh, like a pathology is whether it's interfering in your normal relationships and your ability to live as a human being. So like Rose gets like all these, you know, she's like the spooky spiritual lady um, but it doesn't seem like she's particularly crippled by it. You know, she has a pretty high regard, able to make friendships and da da da. Whereas Julie, it seems like it's causing her to harm herself and eventually take her own life. But I don't know how to square that with the three types of ghosts, because if I was sitting there with Rose, like how does Rose experience a ghost of trying to take her? Yeah, because that just seems like that's that's it that's there pathologic. And mugs it. Until it's yeah, until it gives she's up. Like, <laughs> she's like, get the fuck. Yeah, she, she, she like bang pots and like drive it off uh-huh. like a raccoon in your trash or like um, because, yeah, that would be a healthy way to deal with it. But like if, if that's something that she's like, oh, it's like, oh, the knights were the ones that want to take me come. They're hard and I drink. It's like, well, now we're back in the like mental illness um, or that being pathologic. So I mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. 
But it's interesting to hear how Le- the, uh, Issa Lopez is talking about it. Uh-huh. Um, I want to talk, and if, if you have some more things to say about that, I, but uh, I want to springboard into the lighthouse proper. Okay. You're listening to The World We Deserve. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back with more of the world we deserve. Did the lighthouse fail to contain Julia and protect her or did the lighthouse? Is there something more sinister here? Because I was, you know, when, um, you know, I just recently got that rewatch, the true detective season one and the closest analog to the scene of Navarro showing up and blowing this place up is Russ interviewing the head Tuttle, I forget his name, but the the televangelist, you know? Mm-hmm. And the interview with him, you definitely get that, like, there is some incompetence here that's deliberate. Like, oh, they lost a whole bunch of records, or, ah, oh, you know, the, the hurricanes, there were sketchy records. But you kind of got the feeling that, like, oh, there's something sinister here. I just got, like maybe incompetence maybe like hey we're not like a state research visit we're not an institution we're like a kind of like a quasi religious community help center we don't have the ability to keep people against their will i didn't get any mm-hmm. like oh this guy you know of course he's just the guy doing the front desk at the graveyard shift but i didn't get any like oh there's something sinister here it's more of yeah. like well yeah your sister signed in on her own accord she can sign out uh, maybe you know I would say maybe should have done a better job of alerting her next to kin that you're releasing her maybe make mm-hmm. sure she has someone to pick her up but like I didn't see anything sinister there are you what's the psychosphere telling you about the lighthouse uh, I've I feel the same way about it as you do I think she just kind of left of her own accord and I mean if it's not a facility that is designed to contain people it might be she just walked out the front door and nobody even really knew. Like, That's, yeah. It, it, she's not in a mental ward at a hospital. She's not, yeah. like, this is not a facility with cages, you know? Um, she could have just walked right out. So I, I don't yeah. think there's any foul play here, I assume, but I'm open to being wrong about that as well if we learn some more next episode. What do you think... Uh... Evangeline kind of like regards Julia as she's being inducted and she's kind of has this weird look in her face. She says, you knew you were going to stay here, didn't you? Hmm. Did she, is, is that mean like, you know, you're finally scared enough by your own behavior that you want to be protected. Like what, what exactly? I, 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 I watched that a couple of times. I, I don't quite understand what she was getting at. Yeah. Same here. Uh, I, I don't know what she means by that either. It's more. I, I, my 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 intuition says that it's like this is something between the sisters of like you you know when you walked out started stripping naked and like expose yourself to freezing cold temperatures it will kill you in minutes 
that like you were going to end up here and you probably needed to be here um, or, and it I seemed mean, like she I, was sincere about that until the corpse showed up under her bed which uh-huh yeah yeah she didn't I, I don't think she had intentions to walk out into the water until she realized that no matter what she even does here yeah even here it's I'm gonna finally follow doing her. I'm finally doing the thing my sister said I have to do and it's it's worse than ever mm-hmm she didn't give yeah. him much time. I mean, maybe, you know, let the drugs kick in or something first, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get the orange roll out from underneath the bed. We got some interesting feedback about the symbolism of uh, oranges. Uh, I'll tease it in case people normally skip the feedback, but apparently there is uh, some association with uh, orange, especially in Canada and indigenous peoples and, you know, uh, there's this uh, they call it orange orange shirt day, which is like um, a, a, a commemoration of the what do you call those? The the schools that they would take native kids to to essentially not make them native anymore. Oh. I forget what they call that, like the forced schooling or uh, there's a particular term of yeah. art for taking these kids into a school and like beating Christ into them and cutting their hair and not wearing letting them wear their native garb and divorcing them from their native practices and it just yeah a, like it's a, it's a form of cultural genocide the people remain but the things that made them distinct from the colonizing culture have been erased yeah, there's a really good episode of reservation dogs that deals with yeah. one of those schools boarding i think year. it's like boarding schools or something like that that's something missing yeah. for it but yeah uh stay tuned to feedback for some really fascinating stuff about that but otherwise you've got also just you know, the naked association with death that we've mm-hmm. gotten in cinema. Uh, and also that necklace reappearing. Yeah, that's interesting to me. I, I don't know exactly what they're doing with that because Navarro throws that away like two episodes yeah. ago. Yeah. And it could um, be a physical necklace that her mom dropped in her, what, patrol? No, no, it couldn't have been. That's she, there's no way her mom or... Did Navarro have that around and she just dropped it in the patrol car? I don't know. Uh, I, Yeah, I assume. Or I guess it could be just a vision. Like she throws that cross out, but the cross isn't real. Yeah. Because nobody else is around when she does that. So it could be her trying to reject the traditions that have mm-hmm. been foisted on them and, you know, showing her struggling to reconnect with her roots. Well, and rejecting. <laughs> the affliction that both her sister and her mother had. I mean, she's the one trying to keep it together for everybody, right? True. Uh, So Navarro is out with Pete. We'll get to this, uh, the mission they're on later, but she gets a call from the Coast Guard and some bad news. Um, And I thought, you know, again, with the the theme of loneliness, she has a person here, uh, fellow member of the force, or or I guess a force, uh, would probably be a sympathy, you know, someone who would show a sympathetic ear, and she chooses to not tell him anything. You know, she got this devastating news, and he's like, Is everything okay? She's like, Oh, yeah, fine, go home, be with your family. She's not fine. That's it. I I think it's the that thing, go home and be with your family. It's December 24th, it's Christmas Eve. Like, she tells him this, and Mm -hmm. how's he gonna go home? to his family right. and have a nice Christmas Eve. But that's She's the kind of isolating. That that, that's, not, that's not Christmas behavior. That's not that's not the spirit of Christmas is to keep those things yourself and suffer in silence. And Yeah, um, that's true. 
Yeah. And uh, she pays the price for it because she uh, tra- transmutes this fear. Well, she's sad. She's, she's got two negative emotions, sadness and fear. And uh, she does a prototypically masculine thing of converting that through emotional alchemy to anger. Mm-hmm. And she knows what she can do with that. And first she goes and blows up the lighthouse people. Um, and then she goes, she passes this, uh, this wife beater, um, uh, the guy who beat the, the, the blue King crab lady up the one, the missing fingers. And she finds him with his boys on Christmas Eve and she just lights into them. And unfortunately, like I said, even, even a, even a well-trained boxer of approximately the same size as three other dudes is going to have a hard time winning a street fight in those conditions. And, and, and she doesn't do it either. She just gets the piss beat out of her. Yeah. Um, I feel like we got to talk about this in in conjunction with the scene with Kavik. So that's why I was going to see if you had any like standalone takes. But yeah, she uh, and it's funny. It's like she doesn't go to Kavik for help. She breaks into his bar and starts like treating herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, he goes and, you know, meets her with a shotgun and finds out that she's been battered and starts immediately taking care of her. Which she could have um, gone home. She could have gone home yeah. to treat herself. I think this is this is her reaching out. It's yes. she, she expresses her emotions in really strange ways. And I think like Kavik earlier when he was with his dogs and you know telling this metaphor uh, about the dog who's got this soft interior. If you just get past the you know the biting and the yelping and then barking and stuff, I, I really like this scene. I think this is. One of the best blendings of physical and emotional pain I've seen in a long time. Um, mm. The way that, you know, she's trying to be tough. She's like, ah, oh, don't touch my finger. It hurts. And Kavik right. distracts her with this surprise. I, I mean, I assume she thinks that he's proposing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hey, let's get married, which is insane given what's happening right now. Uh, this is a terrible time to propose. But he's distracting her to set her finger back in place to heal her. And I, the way she reacts to that is so interesting to me because she screams because of the physical pain when he pulls her finger. And then, and then she keeps screaming. She keeps saying, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And I think part of that is not because the hand hurts. I think it's her heart hurts. Like she, kind of got caught up in that moment like she's she says no don't like this is stupid don't do this when he's getting down on one knee and i think some of this is like she kind of wants that to happen and when he pulls that away and it's revealed for just a trick just a distraction Mm -hmm. i think she's extra hurt by that and you know not for nothing she's also extremely hurting because of her sister at this moment so like and all also that. the broken finger just got set. There's exactly yeah. yeah there's the like three levels of the, the physical and, and emotional pain. It's I think it's really well done. I do too, and I think I think you're I, that's a hundred percent correct analysis. That as much as she would be the first person to do her Navarro thing of like fuck you, Kavik, we're not getting married. What the hell does that even mean? And you start to wonder like how much of her pushing him at arm's length is like uh, an attempt to protect him because it's like well if I'm yeah. a, Inevitably going to succumb to the call of the ice. Mm-hmm. Why the hell would I take a nice guy like Kavik and, and wreck him like that, you know? And when she's sitting there asking, like, why are you alone? And, and yeah. like, in life. I mean, she's asking that of him because she wants to know why she's alone. It's, do you 
it's funny you interpreted that as like when he said i'm not alone he's like i don't you thought do you think he means i have you i mean that's probably one person he has but it, he he seems like a guy who has friends that's what i'm saying he's I think a bartender that, for god's sake yeah, well yeah <laughs> but I, I got that too that like i i have a full life where i'm plugged into my community and i have friends that i ice fish with and i have my my family who's going to Disney my world dogs. because you know, and I got, yeah, like I, I don't think that Kavik feels like he's not wanting to be with Navarro because he's desperate or because, you know, mm-hmm. he's afraid of being alone. He wants because he loves her. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, how do those cheek piercings work in a fight? I, I was curious because I'm like, Jesus Christ, Ooh. is she, does she square up and fight in a ring with those? And I, I, I found a lot of pictures of her and her fighting career and it seems like she removes those. But yeah. like I can't even imagine. Like I imagine some kind of stud or something. Does it get just like get punched into your your cheeks and your teeth? And I would think so. Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> it's like it's like installing brass knuckles for your enemy. For the <laughs> like, other guy, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like here, come uh, punch these brass knuckles I put on my jaw. Yeah, you don't have to brass knuck up. I've got them. I, I got them pre-embedded into my cheeks. And he, she lost a tooth. Um, I did feel like they went either too far in her immediate. I got the fuck beat out of me makeup, or they didn't go far enough in her next morning. I got my face put together makeup because man, eh, she, she went was to her cut battered. And, yeah. I guess so. He, he I guess just so. you know put the put the pad on, put the ice on. Yeah, yeah. Vaseline yeah. her face up, send her back out there. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think you're right. It was it was a little too extreme on both ends. She was both too beat up and too healed at the same time. Yeah, I'm just thinking about like you know just fully processing the death of her sister because like the things that her sister is saying, and I think she meant them. This is before she saw her dead mom in, in her room. But like, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow, and I love you, and we'll have Christmas together, and like all these like you know promises and the fact that she was out there on the ice when she took the phone call being like, Oh yeah, I love my room. It's peaceful, quiet. This is multiple layers of betrayal and sadness and loss. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I do wonder, like, I, I wonder if next episode Connolly's going to put like, try Cause like you got to think those guys that she attacked are going to probably call and press charges uh, you know, Liz fucked up her car. I think it that got damaged, like, and she's driving around drunk. Like, I could see Connolly coming in with a head of steam being like, and they're all excited, like, they've got this major break, and he's like, yeah, well, yoink, I'm taking you guys off. Mm-hmm. Which is also a very true detective season one thing. Like, that's, you know, sure. uh, Russ got pulled off the case not for self-destructive behavior, but for essentially pulling on too many Tuttle threads. But mm. it's a very true detective thing for the cheat to, to, to be pulled off the case because you're getting too close. Yeah. So Navarro shows up after this to talk to Liz and they both kind of comment on each other's beat up appearance because we'll be talking about Liz here in a minute. And she's been uh, abusing herself. Uh, she realizes that she's lost the spiral stone, which we'll be talking about here in a bit. Um and she finds the bear, you know, because Liz is like giving her this whole bunch of guff about the 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 spirit stuff isn't real and God's not real and it's only things in front of her face. And she's like, well, if that's all that's true, why do you hold on to this? And Liz angrily throws that shit out into the street theatrically. Um, mm-hmm. She reveals that her sister killed herself. 
and that she's got this creeping dread that it's something that you know it's a curse that her family's going through and she you know she's the next door for the grim reaper to to take a step on uh to take to, to step up to um, yeah, and there's a, I thought, slightly awkward turn of the conversation to the Wheeler case. They're trying to give us more info on that, but it, this didn't feel like the right place to do that. It did feel a little abrupt because you just had Liz screaming that nothing yeah, outside of this world exists, and then you saw a ghost, and I know you saw a ghost. Tell me about your ghost. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it didn't feel right in this scene, but, but maybe it does she's give trying us a little to... more information. Was she trying to make the like? I don't think Liz was like you actually saw a ghost. I think she's like you claim to saw a ghost, and that means you know that this is like you just need to maybe unlike your sister where you fight it tooth and nail until the very end. It's too late. Maybe you should go into the lighthouse before you start actively trying to go out into the ice. Sure. Yeah. But I uh... I agree. I thought it felt a little there. Um, I think a lot of the criticism of this season has been unfair. And oh, yeah. simply would not be happening if this was called uh, Night Country. You know, I, I was thinking like, I wonder if people would be, like imagine if like Sharp Objects, the person came there and be, hey, I want to do the Sharp Objects. Sharp Objects. Well, you know, it's been a while since we've done True Detective. How how do you feel about True Detective Sharp Objects? Mm-hmm. Fucking great show. But just by hanging True Detective on it, it's going to invite comparisons to maybe better television. Certainly different types of television. I don't think it's it's really suited. Uh, I I don't think it's done what HBO's want to do. Although I guess people are talking about it, and more and more people are watching it. But uh, I, I, I think did... that's a preamble to to say it's not perfect either. It's not perfect, <laughs> and there's yeah. a couple things I know. Like I don't buy the Coast Guard finds her sister's body in the fucking Arctic Ocean on Christmas Eve, an hour after she goes out onto the ice, mm-hmm. essentially, because it's the same fucking day. Yeah. That seemed like a crazy shortcut. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of ways you could arrived at that, but like that was a pretty big, that's a pretty big reach, pretty big ask. Yep, I'm with you. Um, so yeah, that's uh one of the first few honest criticisms that I felt like I've landed on the show. Um, do you want to rewind the tape a little bit and go down the Liz Danvers path, or do you have some more stuff you want yeah. to talk about, Evangeline? I mean, the, she where she ends up this episode, I don't know if she is an active part of this investigation anymore or if she is going to be completely sidelined by whatever injuries, self-inflicted or ghost-inflicted, she has at the end of this episode. That's Sometimes my biggest question. that happens, too. Like, in season two, wasn't... Um, fuck, what was her... Um... Rachel McAdams. Rachel McAdams, but is Antigone or something? I forget oh, what yeah, her name her was. Name. Annie, yeah. it was Annie. Uh, the, I thought was, didn't she like get kidnapped essentially in the like the last episode, or episode and a half? And it was it, I think it, so. It, so it's like it it's in the shows. It's in the show's DNA for one of the true detectives to be sidelined. Mm-hmm. Um, it happened to kind of Russ in a very small extent where he got you know stabbed and was incapacitated by the Yellow King before Marty came in there and. Uh, sure. I I guess Russ ends up saving himself, kind of, sorta, with Marty's help. But it, it can happen. I I wouldn't. I, like I said, I I think that Connolly's going to roll in there and try to take it all. I I think that that Liz and Navarro are going to have to work the rest of the case off the books. Hmm. Okay. 
and maybe they'll have a leg up with like the native population that they're you know um because that's that's kind of an un thus thus far somewhat untapped uh resource on the show um it seems like her and uh, Liz has an antagonistic relationship with that, but like maybe her and Navarro will solve it with the help of the native population, and Connolly's going to do more of just like retreat back to Anchorage. I I don't know. Um, I guess I just want to know what her mental state is. Is she is her head still in the investigation, or is her head in the spirit world? You know. I said in the description that she was catatonic. I don't know if that's true because she did respond yeah. to Liz. She looks um, over at her. Mm-hmm. It's just she's had a fucking experience. I want to know. Like I want to hear. God damn, I'm so pissed we don't have an instant take this week. I want to hear I want to hear what she says. Like, yeah, why is are she your deaf? ears bleeding? What is happened? Is she catatonic? Like, is she going to have to go to the hospital for a bit? Uh Yeah, what what was your subjective experience of this, you know, whatever popped your ears and and whatnot? Mhm. I don't know. I saw a boombox. Right. Maybe she turned that up too loud. True. She had like Doc Brown's, uh, yeah, just <laughs> yeah. Back to the Future me- mega speaker experience. Mm-hmm. Let's let's move to Liz Liz, Liz Danvers. Um, what do you make of the uh, th- this noise machine is so fucking prominent? Mm-hmm. I got to think that they're doing something with it. Like, if, if, if the implication of Liz would shut this damn noise machine off, that maybe the dead would start talking to her. Like, like the reason that. Uh, yeah. Her son is running to Navarro and being like, "Tell mommy something," because he tries to tell her, and every time she he does, she just turns the white noise machine up. Yeah, I, so I was listening to the official cast, and they were talking about the polar bear and how that is basically, you know, the the spirit world come knocking on Liz's door, right. but she doesn't believe in it. She rejects it, and yeah, I think the white noise machine is is. Much like that, it's it's a representation of her blocking that out. Mm-hmm. It seems like she's just completely haunted by this Andy situation. I'm not exact, and I I guess the you're you're supposed to make the connection between Annie and her daughter, and her worrying about something happening to her daughter, especially since she seems to be pat- walking the path of Annie and getting involved in mind protesting, and you know we see what happened the last time that happened. I think all that stuff is tracking, but she's just extremely haunted by her inability to solve these cases. And I think it comes to a head here um, with her finding Julia walking down the street half naked and putting the coat on her and saying, I'm, I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to protect you. And then her killing herself at the end, being yeah, unable to, to protect her. It. I think yeah. there have to be some emotional ramifications next episode and you can see it kind of on her face when Evangeline tells her there's a big mix of emotions there, right? One, oops, I just said the dead are gone and they're nothing mm-hmm. but meat and they need to be recycled and turned into fertilizer. And mm-hmm. <laughs> now she tells me her sister killed herself. Yeah. Oops, big foot in the mouth there. Um, uh-huh. And then there's also that that realization that, oh, I told her I was going to protect her and I I was so focused on this other thing that I wasn't there to do that. And I'm doing the same thing with my daughter. And like, there's so many layers to that reveal there that I I think are just really well done. Yeah. If I wasn't drinking, maybe I would have caught into some of the signs or I would have been, cause she, she's very, so you should take care of your sister and all, but like maybe she should have backed off and spent some time with her family, spent some time, make sure that Navarro was okay. 
yeah, definitely mm-hmm. some some guilt there. And I also really like the scene of her checking on her daughter and kind of brushing the hair out of her face. It shows that yeah. as much as her daughter thinks this is something that she feels forced to do, that she does have some genuinely motherly feelings towards her. That's probably where, all, like you mm-hmm. said, all the she's taking that fear and transmuting it to anger it, at her daughter's tribal tattoos, at her daughter's protesting and being socially conscious, uh, even, yep. you know... Uh, even sleeping with other children, I guess, is is something that could uh, get get a get a native kid in trouble. Uh, That's the thing, kids. Just you know, we talked about this with the video that Leah made in the first episode. The kids just don't understand some of the consequences mm-hmm. that might arise yeah. from you know pretty radical actions. Honestly, yeah. Why would they? Like the idea that they yeah. die is like a, such a foreign and they don't even they don't have the experience to to know things yeah. can go wrong. Yeah, and they think that they're you know all their stuff has worked out because in all their short life it all has. So, and um, I say that to say if Liz just sat down with her and said, "Look, I'm sorry, I'm being a huge asshole here. I'm doing it to try and protect you because things can go badly mm-hmm. when you think they can't." She just wouldn't get it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it wouldn't register as true to her. It would be something that she would probably still resent. So. There's a scene with uh, Connolly, who's coming to personally uh, oversee a routine body transport, which she questions him on. And uh, I got the implication that he, yeah, he's worried the case will be you know handled correctly, but he's kind of hoping that he can get some. Santa Claus needs some loving, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's he's hoping that uh, she'll be his Miss Claus. That's that's what I got. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously very lonely up here on Christmas Eve, sitting in his hotel room, whitening his teeth and watching Elf. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I definitely think, you know, if he's got to be here, he might as well get get at least a little bit of uh, attention from someone else, let's say. Mm-hmm. Did, did you clock the maneuver he did with her water bottle? I love that note. I think that's I missed, perfect. I want so what so because I missed that the first time watching, or I didn't get the but like I got some thoughts about it. What what do you think that they're what are they getting at there with him sniffing that? This is part of the subtle storytelling that I was talking about at the yes. very beginning. He is sniffing this bottle. So what happens here, in case you missed it, is he picks up Liz's bottle off her desk, sniffs it, and then pours it into the plant to water it. He's checking to make sure that that is water. And not, let's say, Jack Daniels or Absolute Vodka, right? Yes. He And this combined with the stuff he says about her being a mess um, earlier in her career, actually even before the Jake and Holden thing happened, she was a mess. It tells me that she has had and probably still has a drinking problem. And then she says to to, uh, Navarro later, look, I I barely drink, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's... That's something she does to keep herself in check because she knows she can get, she can go off the deep end with that stuff. Yeah, so him sniffing I wonder... it is just a brilliant, quick little way to tell us, oh yeah, he knows her history with this and it's not good. Absolutely, that's exactly what I got out of it too. That, um, you know, and I and it's like, did she did she have a pretty bad drinking problem that she dried up for when the drunk driving incident happened, um, or did she plunge into alcoholism after drunk driving and then um, her daughter Leah's like loss prompted her to? I guess it was, those were all the same thing too. 
But I think yeah. in case like I, I so so they have in like AA a con- uh, concept of a dry drunk. Have you heard that? Huh. Where it's like a person has abstained from drinking, but they haven't done any of the internal work to like mm. not be an alcoholic. They're just like white knuckling sobriety. It's not yeah. an easy thing. It's like they're. I wonder if they're trying to show that she, because of the trauma of getting you know her loved ones killed through drunk drivers, she's like dried up. But like the things that uh, made her an alcoholic are still there. You know, she hasn't solved any of the internal void that's causing mm-hmm. all these negative things that she has to self-medicate for. She's throwing herself into the work as a form of self-medication, as a form of distraction. Yep. It, it's really, like you said, I, I love it. I, I thought that was such a cool detail to throw in there. Let me, let me ask you this. What do you think is the, the timeline and the reasoning and the, like everything behind this? Because they make it clear that it didn't start. Her drinking didn't start with Jake and Holden's death. She was a mess before that. And, yeah, I, I look back at that dancing scene now, where they they say, "Oh yeah, she smoked weed." Uh, mm. I I wonder if, I, well, I don't have a good a good way to reconcile those two things because she looks very happy, but she could also be drunk and high True. and abusing substances in that scene, and we're just seeing the part where everything is fine and okay with that because they're dancing in the living room having a good time. And then you fast forward and she perhaps gets her husband and son killed. Uh Uh-huh. And also, I can't remember if Liz herself said or someone said it about them that they, even Jake and her had their, as as, as happy as we saw them in that moment, uh, they had their ups and downs. Right. It wasn't like a smooth, completely trouble-free relationship, so... Mm -hmm. And uh, and the assessment of him, of Jake, seems to be, I guess, rosier than the assessment I've seen of Liz so far. I don't know if her demeanor changed after. I mean, obviously it changed after Jake and Holden died. But I I wonder if, like, he he was cool with that stuff. And, you know, he'd smoke weed and have a good time. But she, like, took it too far or something. She would She would abuse it, whereas he was just using it. I also appreciate the way because one of the questions I had in my mind is like if when Connolly takes this over, is Liz going to try to pull a Hank and keep some of the case files back? Apparently, she shared everything with him. He even knows about the Annie video. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, she told him about her extracurricular forensic adventures. She told him about the video. She I, I think they're trying to tell us that she is she's she's not trying to be territorial about this case thus far. Yeah. Um, we also learned another detail when she's talking to Navarro about, you know, that Julie's praying a lot. We know that Navarro's praying a lot, uh, that when she lost her mom at the tender age of seven, her dad encouraged the girl, the, his family to pray. And she said she prayed so hard that her knees turned black. Um, and this is one of the like, core of her atheism. Like, well, and, and I got nothing but black knees out of it. So then, you know, I kind of mm-hmm. learned to go about the other way. Did you think anything is interesting about the symbol symbolism of black knees? No. Did you? Just that, like all the men who were fra- flash frozen, their extremities were black. I I assume I associate black with like gangrene, dead tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously this is for very different reasons. This is like a black and blue bruising, but it's. And, I, I thought there's some interesting parallels there and just the visuals of it. 
Um, right about here, Katie, who is uh, owns the mine as near as I can tell it, uh, yeah. calls in the middle of the night, says there's a problem at the mine office. She goes down there, and Leah has vandalized the corporate headquarters of the, the silver mine with murderers and a skull at the end to punctuate it. And Liz essentially calls upon Katie's Christian decency and the spirit of the season to get her daughter home, uh, which doesn't earn her any brownie points in her daughter's book because she moves out. Yeah, no. I mean, the first thing she does is say, I ought to kill you, you know? Um, yeah, this this is... Uh, Hmm. Why do you always take their side? I have a lot of complicated feelings about this scene. Not yeah. not in its quality, just in the the events of it. Like I don't know if Kate feels like now she has something on Liz. Like Liz owes her one. Seems like it. Yeah, it there's like a look it. on her face that says, Ha. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you off the hook, but I gotcha. Maybe she doesn't like the fact of have, like being able to have her in her debt in some way. Yeah, because I get the impression she also fucked her husband or something. Like, oh, yeah, there's, clearly. Uh, clearly. Uh, good Lord. Um, and then I'm, I'm also conflicted on, you know, the, uh, Leah's reaction to Liz's reaction because, mm-hmm. you know, this is, like I said earlier, a pretty radical... Uh, action to take I get that your cause is just I, I don't like, know I'm I'm conflicted on it I saw a lot of people you know even in our audience talking about like how could Lee expect her mom the chief of police to be okay with this uh, a lot of people had some sure. some takes on uh, was it is it Katie uh, Kayla Kayla is Pete's wife like Pete's wife's being a giant bitch. Like, yeah, it's Christmas Eve, but this is like a sextuple homicide. And, you know, it's a very little, but it's like, to me, this is telling a story of it's not about this event. Like, mm. if, you know, Liz has gotten a phone call about the girlfriend and the, and the, the, the amateur child pornography and have been a little bit cooler about it and not gone right to be like, you're 17 and she's 15 and you should be smarter than this. And, it's about the, uh, the 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 tattoos, and you gotta scrub that shit off your chin. It's about the like, mm-hmm. you're going to the mining protests, uh, you know, and, and it's it, everything. E- like you always take their side. She's not just talking about the mine. She's like, every single time someone has lodged a complaint, even if it's a relatively normal, healthy, like I think it's a high risk behavior. Teenagers share nudes with themselves, but guess the fuck what? They're gonna do it, you know. Sure. And yeah. as a parent, part of it is like, you know, dealing with the like, yeah, you got to guide them in, in the smarter decisions. But also, if I had a cell phone when I was 16 and I was had a hot, hot girl or boy I see in, I'd probably want to do that, too. This um, mm-hmm. is like Leah just feels like at no time her mom has her back when yeah. really her mom is just so fucking afraid of Leah making the mistakes so will wind her up dead that that's all she can see. Um, yeah, and the tragedy of it is she's pushing her that direction by reacting the way she is, you know? Yeah. And that's baseline mom stuff. Now she's also chief of police, and she's the mm-hmm. enforcer of yeah. the law. And the mine is, like, not the law, but it might as well be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's... 
I guys, I really like it. I think they're doing a really good job of showing how like fucked up these dynamics are and what impossible positions are. But yeah, I just want to push back a little bit of people saying like, oh, Leah this or ah, oh, Kayla that. Watch out for that polar bear. We'll be right back. Time to continue our investigation back to the world we deserve. Right. Here's the the real false note to me in this scene. Mm-hmm. Outside this office building, there are a couple of Teslas parked out there. Does a does a? I mean, maybe they're a model. How much y. range? Do you, how much range do you get at negative forty with a Tesla? A yeah, they got like forty miles of range. Congratulations! Uh-huh. Uh, they have to tow a generator just to keep their battery charged. B, these are not equipped to deal with this amount of snow and ice like everybody here should be driving trucks four yeah. wheel drive cyber large... trucks <laughs> sure yeah I, I i bet the salt on the roads would would treat those stainless steel panels pretty good oh yeah well they have magnesium yeah. uh sacrificial i don't know bumpers <laughs> they got zincs they got zincs yeah. installed sacrificial yeah, like anodes nice uh-huh. yeah yeah nice that's <laughs> actually not a bad here. idea honestly yeah the anodes uh uh-huh no i i just thought it was crazy to see two tesla's out there I'm like what good are those up here <laughs> uh liz tries to beg and cajole leah to stay spend christmas with her you know she's been again this is like she's been trying to do the good old-fashioned family christmas but they're not having a good old-fashioned family christmas and you know i kind of think leah made the right cho- choice when she goes and she's with her laundromat grandma and she's with her uh tribal sister and they're having a great time and there's smiles and there's a genuine warmth if she had stayed there with liz it would have been a shit show it had been shit show of mm-hmm. sullenness and liz would have just gotten a tip and abandoned her in christmas and eve anyway and I, I, I love ahead. this. This is another really, I think, subtle and great scene um, yeah. th- there. So so what is your take on the turkey? Because I've seen a lot of people being like, oh, we're taking turkey now. We're going we're gonna to yeah. talk turkey. OK, we're going to talk turkey. Uh, I've seen a lot of people saying she doesn't have time to cook that turkey. A turkey takes, you know, a raw turkey like that. Four hours in the oven minimum. She's already missed her window and what the fuck is she talking about when she says you're going to miss the turkey i think that's exactly the point yes is that liz has been so distracted by this case that it's now what 6 p.m i, I don't know what time it I, is, who the fuck no, it could be 3 p.m for yeah but but yeah vandalism sure, but, at but, night it's late but she's going over to somebody else's house for dinner so she's already missed the window on cooking this turkey right because she's so distracted by this case it, it, they're telling yes. us that she like her saying you're gonna miss the turkey, that's her fooling herself. Like she was never right. gonna make this stupid. This turkey. house is not smelling of turkey. It's not like no. you know, like look at all the work I've. It's she's yeah, yeah for sure. I I, I think that's what's going on in this scene. I think it's really, it's her really good. And when she throws it away, it's it's partially because she's pissed at Leah, but it's also yeah. because she's pissed at herself. Yeah. Like oh, here's a stupid turkey that I never even cooked, and I'm trying to get my daughter to stay here for what? There's nothing here yeah. for her. Yeah, um, I think you're absolutely right that um, the the gap between her intentions with her family and her reality. And then when I would say family, this is her daughter. Like she yeah. intends to give her this warm Christmas as a child, the stability. 
but she's not. And like, you know, the open question is if, if it hadn't been for these bodies dropped on her, would she's done a better job? It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like it. I, um, I, she'd I found see, some other thing. To, not when she says, Oh, we're actually going to do the Turkey this year. Right. Yeah. You get the impression. This is not the first time the Turkey hasn't happened. Right. Um, I'm what, what is the commonality between Hank and Connolly watching elf? I don't is that know just what's on or like I was trying to think like what is the yeah that was interesting I mean they have streaming services in Alaska I mean, that's a I, hell of a show internet. to watch on Christmas Eve for no sure. problems there it's just I thought it was interesting that they're both watching it and it seemed like they they're showing the scene of like buddy falling in love you know uh with the 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 the, the, the ah what is her name the manic pixie dream girl Zoe Deschanel Yes, Zoe Deschanel. Um, then they're they're trying to like kind of amp up the loneliness of Hank. Like, oh, look at this guy falling in love with this gal, and uh, my gal stood me up. I I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Um, but he's watching Elf, and Liz stops by, bleaching his teeth and watching Elf like you do. And Liz stops by to initiate sex with him, but he is worried. Um. And they kind of like, you know, he's asking some questions and she's picking up on it. And uh, she accuses him of sending her to Ennis because she was scared to, that she was going to take his job. And he freely admits that you were the better cop than me, but you're shit with people. And I didn't. And you were being a mess. And I had to transfer you to where you couldn't hurt yourself or the department. I'm willing to bet it's a little bit 50 50 there, but like clearly she has some problems. Yeah. I'm I've just realized what Christopher Eccleston is doing with his accent. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's like a Boston uh northeast accent. Ah. Right? I think he watched a bunch of the Dangerous Catch and he's going for a pitch perfect stig. Okay. Captain <laughs> it could stig. be that. Is Captain Stig is that or is that the test driver on <laughs> the one the one uh, car on show you like yeah i think it's both i i think stig is I the, so too. the guy's yeah. first name yeah uh uh-huh. and it's also yeah the driver uh what is but that's very confusing to me so he's got a boston accent didn't navarro say that her mother moved them to boston true yeah and then came back to alaska why is he from perhaps boston uh how did he get up here in alaska I don't know. Why is he is like, here? Is Alaska like in uh is is Boston like an Alaskan mine like tropical Alaska? Fishing yeah, like town, a farm team for work where you know saw Alaskans. like like it's like the the most blue collar of the kind of like New England towns. Is that yeah. his reputation? They're like I mean, yeah, New York got don't get me wrong, lots of blue collar, lots of tough, but like you also got Manhattan. You know, Philly's you got, also you got like yeah, Pittsburgh, Philly, I, yeah, Philly, Pittsburgh. Lot, those yeah, kinds of, there's, there's mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah, I'm probably pissing a lot of people off. There's a lot of solid blue cla- blue collar credentials, <laughs> but not coastal towns. So like, yeah, I yeah. wonder if that's like it's like oh, this is just kind of like tropical Alaska or like not as isolated. This is crowded Alaska, and it's like well, if you're wanting to start over from the mm-hmm. Alaska, yeah, like Alaska is where everybody in America goes to start over. Well, if you want to start over in Alaska, where the hell do you go? Some some fishing town. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, maybe. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that there's a... At least I think that's the accent he's doing. I don't know. It could just be that he's not doing a very good accent. 
Uh, so Liz is pissed and she decides to get drunk and do some hard driving. It's a lot of the hard, hard driving, angry therapy in this episode. And she almost hits a polar bear who this polar bear is like me trying to uh, like, like I, uh, like I, I just bought some food and it's packed in like a hard plastic clamshell. And it's like, ugh, it's, it's not worth the effort to try to f- open this thing right now. It's the, is the, it's kind of what I got from mm. this polar bear. Yeah, there's okay. too much glass and metal separating us, lady. Yeah. What do you think's going on with that? I'm trying to remember exactly what they said in the official podcast, but this this was the this is essentially the spirit world knocking on her door. Is is yeah. what they were saying. Um Yeah. Which I don't know how I feel about that. I I guess I want something of more consequence than just a metaphor. If you're going to introduce something that is physically really there, yeah. I kind of want it to be physically really there in the story too. So I don't know if I'm totally sold on this polar bear stuff. I think the polar bear is real, but it also is. could be like but in okay. the story. It doesn't fuck. It doesn't matter. All it is yeah. is some totem that says, "Hey, the spirit world is right outside your door, Liz." I if the polar bear like mauls somebody or becomes a clue in the case, then we can talk. But right now it's just there as a thematic element. Well, you know, they say the murderer is always the person you medium suspect. Like, is that the polar bear? We medium suspect it the polar bear. Absolutely could be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's Christmas and I, I like the scene and there's people ice skating in the pond and Danvers has passed out and she's remembering her child uh, she has a vision of what I would call a whalebone-based shrine that appears to be part of a larger graveyard. Um, it really reminds me of this Native American graveyard I saw in the Beaver Island archipelago on Garden Island. There's like uh, a, a Native American graveyard that has all these just rows and rows and rows of spirit houses. You know, hmm. some of them simple, some of them more elaborate, but there's these kind of like Lincoln log structures contained to, 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 or designed to contain the, the person's soul. And you can leave them offerings and whatnot. Um, but like, yeah, there's this like very distinctly non Christian, although Christian in like a syncretic way. Like it's like you could see that the whale bones crossed over like a small literal cross, like a Jesus cross. What did you make of this imagery? Um, nothing. Unfortunately, I hadn't thought of here talking the twist and shout, her humming, singing twist and shout yeah. is all. It's all, it's tied to Holden somehow. There's maybe Holden's trying to say to say something because this happens right off the heel of the the polar bear. Yeah, could be. Um, and then yeah, there's this. This leads us to you know we already talked about Liz. Um. I guess we'll get to the the mystery of Otis Heiss and all that stuff. Uh, we 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 might be able to transition to the mystery at this point. Uh, one little um, but before we do, I guess there's one little thing that I didn't know where to put exactly, and it's Navarro's meeting with Rose. Mm, okay. What was the point of this i loved it it's great i love to see in rose is living her best christmas life she's all dolled up she's all she's cooking i think you're i think i understand that navarro was she's expecting company like she thought navarro was coming by and she decided to go all out um but like oh, really? you know we 
we, we found out that she is a, a professor from a very important school that wrote very important papers that she just at some point realized, oh my God, all I am doing is contributing noise that doesn't matter to the world. And she wanted to move someplace quieter. And she found it ironic that Ennis is quiet except for the dead. But what are we, I, 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 I speculated that there's maybe something to climate change. She might've been a client change, uh, uh, change research specialist or something. That was her area of expertise, but there's nothing in the episode to really substantiate that. Um, so like, no. yeah, was it just, uh, just a little character moment, like a little piece, a little, little bit of peace for Navarro before they throw her off the deep end. Is it like, you know, Ennis is quiet except for the dead. Uh, I wonder if it's showing somebody who's okay with being alone. Um, yeah. Rose doesn't seem to have the same problems with loneliness that other people do. She's kind of happy in her loneliness. You Is know, that because she, she's constantly visited, you know? It could like, be. It could be, yeah, that she's not actually alone. She has these spirits um, yeah. that are with her. And they're more comforting than not, usually, it seems like. Uh-huh. It could be. Uh, it's just interesting, you know, that she's making she because I don't. I don't think she knew Navarro was coming by. I, I think she's making this really? just to, this dinner just to make it. Yeah. Okay. okay. This is for herself. This is, you know, maybe it's for the sake of her memories and the people that she's lost, or maybe it's just because uh-huh. she likes to bake, and this is an occasion where it seems worth it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I I thought it was saying somebody who is kind of okay in that loneliness, but. Who knows? Gotcha. Okay. Well, um, let's move on to the mystery, which kind of got a little bit sidelined. There's one, uh, like the big red letter event is Pete's research into any uh, injuries consistent with the Salal Station incident has yielded fruit in the personage of Otis Heiss who back in the mid-90s suffered burns on both corneas, ruptured eardrums, and self-inflicted back. I guess it was in the late 90s, in 98. He's a German national with no work history, no current addresses, no known family, no known trace of any financial activity, a long history of criminal conduct, including disorderly conduct, uh, possession of uh, drugs. He's been in and out of rehab, uh, he got put picked up for causing a disturbance by a trooper two months ago. Um, but unfortunately, there's no one left to look for him. So she has she bullies Pete into staying to doing an APB so they can look for both Clark and this Otis guy. Yeah, I'm super curious how this connects to uh, Oliver Tagak. And the thing that stuck out to me is the ID stuff, right? The name and the, like, we don't have any records of this guy. Oliver didn't have any records. um, And yet he was working at the Salal research station. Yeah. Something about that says they're connected, but I don't know how yet. Yeah. I don't know either. I wonder if he's going to be the equipment manager before Tagak. Maybe, um, maybe because it seemed like no one knew that Tagak worked there too until someone started looking at things. So mm-hmm. I, but it is he's he's a big he's a big mystery. We'll be talking more about him. Um, the other thing about this scene is them doing the mutual fuck yous. 
reminded me of her interaction with the Connolly. Mm-hmm. And just in the back, because, you know, they put in this whole kind of uh, idea that maybe Liz is trying to sleep with Pete. Or like maybe not trying to consciously, but subconsciously, that's that's her goal with every human interaction is to try to fuck him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just thought that's very similar behavior she's showing with Connelly. Now they could be saying that she's just a misanthrope and she has this kind of like shitty behavior with everybody, but like the 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 the, the way those exchanges was almost exactly the same between her once and former lover and this guy. I thought I don't know. I cocked a eyebrow medium high, one eyebrow, just one medium high. Mm-hmm. I don't know. She does. She does the same exchange of fuck yous with uh, Evangeline in this episode too. So, she well, you know, running. people are hot. People are hot on the Evangeline and Liz theory too. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, they also her and Liz or uh, speaking of Navarro, her and Navarro are talking about the presence of the ice caves and how there's a lack of ice caves in the area. Um, which they think implies that the body was moved a, a, a considerable distance, which might imply that there this was a, a message being sent, which I think is something that Liz has been resistant to or not wanting to pull too hard on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they then go, they, they need to find someone that's got some expertise in ice caves. So surprise, surprise, they show up to the geology teacher's front door on Christmas Eve which did not impress the man's wife very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but he takes a look at the video. Very interesting. He says that he thinks these are prehistoric whale bones we're seeing in the ice. Yeah, he immediately identifies them. Very confident about yeah. that, too. Yeah, whale bones, probably prehistoric. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then he corrects the lady's misunderstanding that there are actually ice caves. They're just unmarked and extremely dangerous mm-hmm. uh, that you would need maps to find them and an expert to guide you through, or it'd be suicide to investigate it. Uh, and he finds out that the name of the man who mapped these dangerous tunnels out once before one Otis Heiss. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. I have one burning question after seeing the scene. Mm-hmm. Why the fuck would you mount a lamp one foot over your head? <laughs> so every time you I get know, up, it, you, you have to either keep it in your mind and not thump it or you're going to thump it. Like you're you just, wouldn't. you're setting yourself up, man. There's no, yeah. there's, there's no, there's no cool or slick way from standing up from your seat. That's not going to thump your noggin. Nope. I agree. It's a terrible setup. Anyway, um, later on, uh, Liz is noticing a similarity between the video that the hot scientist filmed of making a sandwich and the, uh, the the last desperate moments of Annie Kay, which is she thinks that there is a similar power cut M.O. I don't know. This felt very disconnected. I'm not like I, I didn't. I, I thought this was um, this was a reach that she's making. Uh, and I'm one. I'm curious if it would, if it's ever actually going to track back to you know. It's like did it's just like oh well, Tagak had a generator and he's kind of an asshole about the investigation. So let's go invade his house or like, is, is there going to be any other tie-ins besides cut power? Did the polar bear cut the power? Did well, the it's also de- not. It's also not enough deduction. I like. It's very obvious to me that a power outage would not stop a phone from recording a video. 
And so yes, the and fact it didn't that that stop Annie. Ends. Yeah, because right. like after power cuts and she starts, she screams for quite a bit, and you know something's happening to her. And this was after the power was cut. So why did the recording stop at Slal Station and not? Yeah, yeah. She doesn't ask that question. She's asking the She's wrong. Question. Not asking the right questions, yeah. Jim. Damn it. Um. All right. So. Uh, she gets she kind of she she bullies Pete and Navarra into going to check it out because she's too drunk to do it she's too drunk to be back up to Navarra who could and they're complaining about Danvers and how drunk she is but also Navarro opines that she's probably onto something and they arrive at the nomad camp and I couldn't help but notice all the very interesting bone sculptures mm-hmm. that very much reminded me of season one true detective and they he, he he doesn't answer so they let themselves in and the cabin is just froze completely abandoned pete says it feels a lot like what salal i think it didn't to me though i yeah i, I don't know what else it would feel like though yeah like salal had power which is interesting if the power is cut someone re- implies someone re- restored the power yeah yeah, but it wasn't like frozen inside and all that. I, I wasn't sure exactly what. What hmm. about this reminded you of the Salal Station? Someone leaving half-eaten food? Is it maybe? <laughs> yeah, what would that remind him of? I don't think he was on the force six. Maybe he was on the force six years ago when Annie was killed. No way. This kid, he had been I, like eighteen. Like I think. Like, what I do you know. think this kid? Because like, so she's I trying to get through nursing DST's school. I think they're 20s, in a, but. Late twenties, I was thinking even early twenties. Um, yeah, it's possible. Like either yeah. way, I really don't think he would have been there. I I don't know. So they find a spiral. Uh, I also noticed that he left his boots behind. That's a Ooh. odd thing to leave behind in a, in, in a big trek. Uh, they're right there by his shoes and his gun. Um, but they did find on the floor a big cardboard sheet of paper that has a large spiral, and at the center of that spiral is a small stone spiral. Um, I think they're going to find his body next episode. Like, did he walk out? That's what ice? I was thinking. That's, that's, that's what I would surmise when I saw the boots. I'm like, oh, he walked out on the ice again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, you know, who, I, I don't know. Or maybe he's going to join the heist, uh, the heist Clark you know, mm-hmm. former equipment engineer club that they got going on in the ice caves, which is, I think what they're talking yeah. about with the night, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, so as they're investigating, they hear a commotion outside and they go out and the men of the, uh, nomad camp have, have got their dogs and their guns out and they're not threatening the officers, but they're making them feel like they need to get, they need to be moving on, which they mm-hmm. do. Um, and apparently they he left the day after he came, and they there was a market increase in hostility when they started asking about the spiral. Do you think these men know about the spiral, or are they just being protective of their own? Uh, they probably know something. I mean, that's the thing. If you want to know about the spiral, you can go ask Rose, and Evangeline knows this. It is a little bothering that that Rose seemed to know a lot more about, and I maybe mean, we're supposed to understand that Evangeline follow up on all those questions and we're just not privy to it. But like, yeah, That's like crazy. she's like, Oh, it's old. It's older than Ennis. Maybe. All right. No questions. No follow up. Hey, uh, good <laughs> right. for Christmas dinner. Right. All right. I'll see you then. Like <laughs> you're making no follow ups, right? Awesome. Yeah. See you then. 
Yeah. No, it's crazy. And especially, you know, when you get this thing, like Pete's not going to go follow up on it. I don't know. I mean, he wants to get home for Christmas. But yeah, that's that could be a, a pretty big hole in the plot here. Just go ask Rose. Yeah. So uh, Navarro and Liz are driving around when the Pete calls and says the local fishermen have spotted some strange activity near the dredges that the man in a pink parka has been sighted. The pink parka that used to belong to Annie now belongs to Clark. So they're like, ah, damn, we've got our man. Uh, they go out to investigate. There's talk about these dredges. We talked about this on the instant take. Did you do any looking into these dredges? The gold dredges? No. Yeah. So these gold dredges are essentially giant industrialized versions of panning for gold. They have these Mm -hmm. buckets that scoop in the stream beds. They dump it into this massive cylindrical screen that like sifts anything that's that's uh, bigger than like a quarter inch uh, goes out the back. All the, the rocks and larger sediment, the smaller stuff is then finely sieved where you know it goes through it's but it's essentially it's such a, a minor panning for gold if you ever seen like the old 49ers you know panning for gold it's essentially that at an industrial scale with these huge machines um what if you they, find a big old nugget what if you find a gold nugget you're just gonna kick it out the back with the rest of the rocks apparently so apparently so i mean wow. but, but the, the, this thing is like so like these gold so like the whole idea of my panning for gold in these streams is that um Oh God, this is one of those things where I, I understand enough to kind of understand it, but I realize I don't watch understand Gold explain Rush. it. Like Alaska Gold Rush. I've seen enough of Alaska yeah, Gold Rush like, to I, know. Honestly, yeah. the a third of the Wikipedia article on these gold dredges is about their revival <laughs> on this show. Because nice. apparently what happened is like they would run these machines, these big, large machines, for they'd build them and run them for 30, 40 years, and whenever the gold output dropped below the cost of maintaining a machine they just leave them there and there's like all these abandoned things some of the sometimes they've been made into natural parks or like points of interest but there's like dotted all over the american west and alaska are these just abandoned dredges just like this one so um but yeah they, they they chase him out there uh they go in inside the machinery there's all these weird murals there's like uh what i can only refer to as a spider monkey uh, there's a boombox with a burning barrel. Uh, there's another one of those like menacing, bloody spirals. Uh, and sure enough, a man running in a pink parka. Liz gives chase. Uh, she finds out that it's not Clark. It's actually Otis Heist. Heist. Um, and apparently he's been living out there. He She asks where Raymond Clark is. He knows that name. It says he's gone. He went back down to Hyde. He's hiding in the night country. We're all in the night country now. Let's stop there for a minute. What do you think the night country is? I've been racking my brain trying to figure out an actual definition for this. I think the key, and again, I could be full of shit, but I think the key to understanding this is him saying he went back down to hide. I think the night country is the ice caves. Certainly possible. And I'm also going to state an additional internet points on the reason that they're called this by the weird blackwater drinking cult or whatever. These these people have gone crazy on the ice is because probably even at high summer, those caves like at best are lit like this pale blue, like this mm. twilight color. And it's kind of like they're the same all year round or maybe just underground is dark. 
Um, but I, I think Night Country is these un, un, unlisted, unlicensed, dangerous caves that these crazy people hide out on. Which can kind of reflect, you know, the Carcosa stuff from season one, right? Absolutely. It's sort of a literal right. place, but it's also sort of a, a vibe, right? <laughs> Yeah, like it was yeah. a real place, but they've 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 uh, they've done some work to the place, you know. Right. So yeah, I get behind that, and it's uh, the big hanging thread in this episode. Um, yeah, you know, the, all of the investigation that they do is around this Otis Heist guy and the, and and figuring out who might know about the ice caves. We haven't got to the ice caves yet. That's where the real action is. Yep, we've got two hours left to explore them. Um, meanwhile, so Liz is running after, as she runs after, Navarro hears this ghostly whisper calling to her, and she follows it, and she sees her dead sister floating far below her in the bowels of the machinery of this dredge. Uh, she follows and sees bare footprints that go deeper and deeper into the building until they eventually just stop, and she investigates there, sees a lit Christmas tree, uh, powered by car batteries and she's confronted with the vision of her dead frozen sister and then the la- then, then Liz gets done with Otis They're, they don't make this clear I'm assuming she handcuffs him and secures him and then goes to try to find her partner yeah we'll, we'll see his fate because that is really the only thing that makes any sense yeah um, but she finds her sitting kind of cross-legged in front of this Christmas tree uh, barely responsive, with bleeding trickles of blood coming from her ear, from her from her ears. Uh, apparently, suffered a burst eardrum. Mm-hmm. Anything else on the uh, the 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 mystery track? Like I said, that's not a lot of information no. we found out. You know, whale bones, prehistoric whale bones, Otis Heiss, and, and now they have uh, the guy who might lead them to the caves. The ice caves. Yeah, so. has at least familiarity. The expert. He is the expert. He's the guy to map them. He's mm-hmm. uh, seen better days, but yeah, I do wonder why. Well, maybe it's because he experienced whatever the night country insanity is uh, in a mm. place that wasn't frozen solid. But mm. I do wonder why he doesn't have the same grievous injuries that the scientists do. Because the scientists. I mean, even Lund didn't survive, right? It killed him. Maybe because she wasn't awoke yet, whatever she awake means. And I'm curious to see Clark, what his status is when we finally see him. Don't be afraid of the dark. We'll be right back. She's awake, and we're back. Here's more of the world we deserve. All right, well, let's move on to Pete and Hank. Uh, Hank is waiting for his fiance at the local airport with an Alaskan rabbit. And he's seeing he's desperate. It seems like everybody's left. And he sees this very attractive woman uh, approach the stairway. And she just retracts it and they take off. That's the thing is like I this is where it's like I think he's this type of idiot where he's engaged in his relationship with sight unseen. Even though it, the, he's sending her pictures though. Right. That's what it is. Uh it's, it's a one-sided <laughs> catfishing. 
that was actually her, but she saw how old he was. <laughs> this yeah, guy's not she's... 25. This guy's yeah, 50. Yeah. yeah, she looks as like, this dude's like like 20 years older than I thought he was. Hey, uh, would you uh-huh. go ahead and push up the stairs? I'm going back to Russia. I'm just going to go <laughs> yeah. across the street. She brought, oh, bought man. a round-trip ticket just in case with his money. So Hank goes back to the station, starts drinking, starts drinking Spike Coffee, uh, a.k.a. the classic Four loco. And he confesses to his son Pete that uh, his fiance wasn't on the plane, but he makes he makes a uh, yeah just some emergency, something happened with her mom. And Pete's like, "Oh, dad, you haven't sent her money, have you?" And then he immediately changes to like, "You know what? I'm free for Christmas Eve. How about I hang with the family?" Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you trust, make of Pete's? I don't. I don't trust this chipper, Hank. Uh. Hank knows. Hank feels the betrayal. Hank feels the shame, the embarrassment. Hank is going to be a problem next episode for somebody. It could be, especially if Liz goes at him and Liz absolutely will go mm-hmm. at him. Um, I, but I, I think that there, he's got at least one half of his brain still in denial that like it, it, it maybe something happened at the at customs. Maybe something happened with her mother at the last minute. Maybe uh, she probably would have. She probably would have at least called or texted. But I, I mean, I don't know. I think that there's, just, there's a little. He's still a little. But may, maybe that's where he started. And by the end of the episode, as he watches Elf and sees his bed. giant bottle of champagne in the bed, he's like. But yeah, it, it's it's interesting to me how he reacts here because. If he if he does realize that he's been fooled, then all he's doing here is prolonging or, or delaying the inevitable, right? Because there's going to be a point where he has to admit that if this this woman's never going to show up, that's the thing, and so there will become a point where he has to admit to not just himself but to everyone that he was fooled. Yeah. And he's just like this chipper act. Oh, I'm sure there's a reason we'll do it. He's just trying to deal with this emotional bomb later, I guess. Yeah. 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 So, uh, oh, what do you, what do you think about Pete? How, what is his excitement level at his old man joining him for Christmas Eve? It seems semi-genuine, although he does at the end say, well, I need to, you know, call up my wife and that was my read that Pete's kind of happy that he's going to stop by, but then thinks, oh, but I'm kind of already in Dutch with my Mm -hmm. wife for working late on Christmas Eve. What about? Yeah. 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 She's making a meal with laundromat grandma. And is there going to be enough for an extra person? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's the next scene as you see Kayla and Leah and, and Grandma having a great time cooking. And then you see Peter calling and the, her face kind of falls and she excuses herself. So obviously it's kind of ruined the good time that they were having. Um, we talked about this with the instant take, but like Hank watching Elf and seeing the giant bottle of champagne, which is, I think, a nice bottle. It's like a 50-60. It's not like Asti Spumante or Brute or... You know the I, I whatever know. the the five dollar bottles like they used to be the two dollar bottles, but now are five dollars because of inflation. It, it's 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 actually champagne. It's bubbly. Nice. Uh, the his his camo bed sheets with the fucking rose petals on it and another stuffed animal. Um, yeah, it uh, it made me feel bad for Hank. I didn't think that could happen. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, if he came home and, like, trashed a place, I'd be like, yeah, fuck you, get what you deserve. But he's genuinely kind of devastated, and it felt, oh, it's yeah. Christmas Eve, man. <laughs> it's Christmas Eve. Yeah, nobody deserves that on Christmas Eve. Not even fucking Scrooge, right? Yeah. So, uh, then Pete walks home, and this is brutal, too, after his adventures, and he sees the glow of the Christmas tree, you know, and all the Christmas presents underneath it. And he goes to get in bed with his wife, but he apologizes, and she snaps. Because he doesn't give a genuine apology. It's more of like, you're being a bitch apology. And she just says, let me sleep. And he, he drops out, why don't you say it that I ruined your life and you didn't want to have the baby? Wow. And the overhead shot of the demilitarized, the demilitarized mm-hmm. zone that is their bed is another, like, Hank and Pete. Oh, oh. <laughs> I would not trade Christmases with them. No. Uh, it feels a little bit like he he kind of um, Jerry from Rick and Morty. He kind of jerried her Beth. Like he locked her down with a child that she might have wanted like to get, might have wanted to have an abortion and maybe gone to medical school and maybe gotten away from Ennis and he trapped her with a whole bunch of promises about support and help and here she's raising the kid alone on Christmas. It's like, yeah, there's this isn't just, this isn't just this case is what I, I I'm begging for people to understand. You mm-hmm. know, this is, this is a long process. It's got them to this level of, of yeah. If this is the first time I would be like, yeah, you know, Kayla, she's Christ. It's not every Christmas that you catch a octuple homicide investigation yeah. that opens up a six-year-old investigation into a native woman that's murdered and all that. And you only, have, yeah, but like, it's clearly, it's clearly been a process that, that Liz has been doing and that he's been ignoring and, and there's promises made and not promises kept. And that's my read of it anyway. Yeah. And I, it's, it's tough too, because like Liz in this episode is more nakedly manipulative, I think of Pete than she has been in the past but before it's always been orders like you know go do this thing and Pete's been like oh, okay fine yeah Means I'm gonna miss another night with my wife and I'm supposed to watch the kid or whatever here she kind of she makes him choose between his father and his wife in this case her in fact and then when he picks the same thing that he's always picked she yeah. gives him the pat on the head, right? Like, and and she says she has to like beg him. I couldn't do this without you. And then she says, "That's my boy." When he agrees, yeah. There, there's something grosser about this that's going on here. Because I mean, saying that stuff, like that's my boy in particular. Mm-hmm. This isn't your kid. Mm-mm. This is Hank's kid. You know that Hank has a problem with the way you've been moving in on this relationship, whether it's sexual or not, it doesn't matter. I, I, yeah, I think it's, it's a little gross. That line from her, that's my boy. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Do we have anything else we need to discuss about the episode proper or should we start huffing some psychosphere? Yeah. Let's sniff it. I'm ready. All right. We got, a lot of email. Uh, True Detective at baldmove.com is how you send it in to us. Uh, also, if you want to know what we're doing next, because we're gearing up to do, uh, I believe, Shogun and The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live, the Rick and Michonne uh, series. We got Pulp and Prestige covered. 
If you want to keep up with what we're doing in terms of movies and whatnot, uh, we have a social media. We have many social medias. They're all at Bald Move. Pick which one you want to follow and follow it. Uh, and then finally, if you'd like to support us, they get ad-free feeds. If you'd like to get access to the fabulous instant takes that we won't be doing this weekend. We will not be doing it this weekend. But for the finale, definitely want to get in on that. Uh, we could use your support, support.baldmove.com. You give us money, we give you more podcasts and ad-free feeds. Win-win. All right, up first, the true detective at baldmove.com hotline, Harris. My only hesitation at this point is halfway uh, point of the show, the killer is the guy you most medium suspect, not the person you most suspect. Hank is definitely the guy I most suspect. First, (laughs) he's a creep. Again, that's almost an exoneration at this point, but he's such a creep. The big clue of episode three was the blue hair dye. It was actually the blue paint from the room Hank is painting for his Russian bride. <laughs> Plus this episode, Peter brings the skates to the rink that has blue paint on it. It seems to exactly match the paint in the picture. This paint all definitely right. comes from Hank. Plus if you go back to the episode one, that same paint is all over Hank's clothes and hands. We know Hank is connecting to the mine women. We know there's a motive for them to have killed Annie in their protests. Uh, Hank also got to Slaw Station first and is evasive when Danvers asks why he got there first. The only exoneration for Hank is the halfway point the guy all signs are pointing out can't actually be the killer. I will want to point out that almost all of your evidence is neatly explained by the guy painting his wife or his fiance's room blue. He got blue mm-hmm. paint on his hands and blue paint on the skates. Uh, I mean, if you want to say you got blue paint on Annie's hair six years ago, okay. But Navarro doesn't seem to think so. Navarro seems to think that the hair dye lady did it. Well, blue paint on the on the photo. How recent is that blue paint? Is that blue paint from back in the day when she was having her hair dyed? I mean, wouldn't the why why blue would the paint. photo be there? I guess, but. Or is it from uh, Hank rifling through these files to make sure there's nothing in there that connects him or something before he hands them over to Liz, and that's why he's dragging his feet? It looked like ink, not paint to me. It looked like, you know, like dye, you know, like like the, like the kind mm-hmm. of dye you would get if your hair your, you showed a picture to your hairdresser and her hands were covered in dye, you know? Sure. But I understand. Um, I want to bring it back to someone that here, here's who I, I keep coming back to. You know, you watch the detective, you meet the killer riding a lawnmower in the third episode, and at, he will not come back into the story until the final one. Mm-hmm. Who do you think the person most resembling this is? Kavik. Incidental contact, Kavik. Kavik, yeah. you think Kavik has been this one guy who had this one scene and we oh, never saw no, him again? No, no. Yeah, uh, but my, you really my mind you're, you're on the cat because we see, do have some fe- we got some Kavik feedback. Kavik it, is medium suspected. It would be real heartbreaking if that were the case. It uh, sure who, would. Who is? I mean, Rose. She's like the most go, incidental character I can think of, but she's been in it a few times. I'm gonna go with a woman who matches the handprint on the men's boots that were missing oh, fingers. That yeah, was just yeah, this yeah. mousy Claire character in the background that was kind of the focus of an investigation but then this other thing happened and i i think yeah. it goes like sh- she's somehow connected i don't know that she's a bad person but she is somehow connected to this any situation to the disappearance of the men I, that's the person that i am medium suspecting right now all right 
Uh, let's go to Sean from Cincinnati. Uh, local local boy says totally agree on the obviousness of a common Arctic star shaped tool, but what if it's a common quotes tool but not really obvious to most folks? I took to looking into it and found that there are various shapes and gauges of leather punch tools. And he includes a photo here of some star-shaped leather punches, various sizes. It says, wouldn't seem to- totally unusual for some leather craft to be present in Innis. I keep coming back to like, if yes, but if this was a common thing in the trade, people would know about it. Maybe there's just one person that does... But that's what I'm saying. Like, so, like, if if it's someone from Ennis, I can't believe no one knows. Like, oh yeah, it's Bob. He does all the star-shaped assless chaps down. You know, it's like he's he's famous for his 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 uh, star-punched assless chaps, or he's famous <laughs> for his moccasins that got the stars punched out of it. Like, somebody would know. It's too small of a town for someone to be using, you know, anything like that. But that I will say that that if 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 I was described the wound one of these tools would make it would be star shaped. It looks like it's designed mm-hmm. to punch out star shaped things out of organic tissue because it is. Yeah, exactly is. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah P says one thing I haven't heard speculated among much is the star shaped weapon used on Annie K, and maybe that's because as you'll see, it isn't much help narrowing down suspects. But for the sake of internet points, the star shaped wounds could come from a Torx screwdriver bit or wrench. The larger ones can go up to T100 at 22 millimeters wide. And here's the kicker. They can be used on heavy machinery, vehicles, and electronics, which doesn't eliminate anyone in this challenging environment. If they ever get mm-hmm. to this specific investigation, some star bits are hauled out as a security feature, which might narrow it down to Salal Station, but just because easily be tied to proprietary mining equipment. So, so okay, but this next one, check this out. The alternative is a much wilder pull and that some Mosasauruses were known to have star-shaped teeth. Perhaps you stumbled into it. Yep. I'll, I'll, I'll get there here in a minute. Okay. So, okay, no, all right, we'll do it. Mosasaurus are like a form of aquatic dinosaur. Like I would call them pl- the, like the pleosaurs, but they're short neck and they could get massive, like 50 okay. feet. 50 feet or longer. I see where you're going with this. Yep. Perhaps you stumbled into cross-platform promotion for the upcoming Netflix series around Jurassic Park called Chaos Theory. Um, but maybe that got kicked off when the Slal scientist uh, coring down the ice shell from the Cretaceous period unwittingly woke a female Mosasaurus. She's awake and then killed Annie Kay when she attempted <laughs> no. to green piece the beast back into the sea. I don't Come know how now. serious she was <laughs> yeah. because I'm like, star-shaped teeth, get the, the fuck end. out of here. I did a little search, and apparently, recently, a uh, Moroccan and North African species of ancient Mo- Mosasaur has been discovered as star-shaped teeth. They've been described as looking like a Phillips head screwdriver with like an extra fin on it. Um, and I, but the, yeah, I these teeth, and they can be like an inch or two long with these fifty-foot Mosasaurs. I could see a weapon with that that could punch and. Could you misinterpret a moat? Because I saw some skeletons of them, and I looked at side by side with yeah. the whale, and I could easily mistake a Mosasaurus skeleton for a whale skeleton. I would think. Yeah, that. So that was the interesting part of this. Um, so, so there. Are, I, I think both of these theories become more plausible this episode with what we found out about uh, Otis Heiss and him being what the form or, or no I, i'm sorry was it takak who was the former like engineer 
Yep. At the station. Um, yep. He would probably have, you know, a lot of Torx head screwdriver stuff sitting around. Um, yeah. And you start stabbing somebody, there might be uh, some Torx head shaped uh, wounds. So that's a little tidbit. And then on the other side here with the teeth, I think there's... I mean, saying, hey, those are whale bones. I, I, I'm super curious because this guy seemed very confident. And yeah, especially with the ancient, because like this is a this is a culture. This is one of the few cultures on Earth that can hunt whales without any kind of like Alaskan Native Americans are allowed to hunt a certain amount. And I don't even think a certain amount. They're allowed to hunt whales to subsist on. Hmm, so okay. like this is a culture we saw with their burial sites that they're like the whale this you know with the seal and the polar bear and the walrus and everything out they, they they this is a a big part of their culture so like for him to be like oh those are whale bones probably prehistoric that prehistoric has got to mean something yeah and if i mean she's down in the ice caves you could see um some thaw happening down there to make the caves and there happens yeah. to be these mosasaurus teeth sitting around and they're used as the murder weapon uh yeah. for whatever reason i know there's I, I some like it. Uh, you, you know, like there's some Native American, especially like in Central America. I'm thinking like the Incans and Aztec would make these war clubs that were these kind of like flat paddles, and they embed uh sharp flint and stone to make like these cutting surfaces. But they'd also embed animal teeth. Yeah. So it's like now this is Central America is pretty far fucking away from you know the Inuit and Inupiat cultures of of Alaska and Canada. Mm-hmm. But could you make a, a primitive dagger out of one of these star-shaped teeth? Like, I don't know. Eh, eh, sure. Eh. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how they'll discover that. The scientists will call them back up and say, eh, actually, I was wrong about the whale right thing. It's a mosasaur. Right as they're going to the ice cave, they'll, they'll get a uh-huh. call as the cell phone receptions. It's, it's, I, I was wrong, Liz. It's not a whale bone. It's a, <laughs> it's a mosasaur tooth. She's awake. You gotta She's get awake. out. You gotta get out. She's, yeah, yeah. I can see it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Let's move on to Gnarls. He says, I was thinking about the interview with Finn Bennett where he claims to pay attention to the oranges. Because of this, more discussion of the incident on the tundra with Navarro and her throwing of the orange is warranted. Earlier in the season, in this very episode, the issue of Navarro's Inupiaq name is brought into question. The issue, This issue of what it means is to be a part of indigenous culture in Ennis affects other characters as well, Leah and Annie Kay. So anyways, back to the oranges, it is well documented that scurvy has been endemic for outsiders living in Arctic regions due to short supply of vitamin C dietarily. Indigenous communities avoid scurvy by outcome of their diet. Fresh meat and fish, plants and berries. This is the reason why Hank's hillbillies have a bunch of oranges. When Navarro tosses the orange into the tundra and the tundra returns the orange to her, I believe this is related to her relationship with her own culture. In many ways, Navarro is an outsider, uh, despite also being a member of the community. Does she, the, the uh, Tundra, Sedna, whoever is awake, know that she cannot remember her Nupiak name? Could a reconnection to her culture be the key to solving the Annie K and Salal cases? So I thought this this email pairs well with another one sent by Jessica S. I just want to go ahead and reading. She says, I had an idea about the orange imagery because it can also symbolize forced assimilation. Orange Shirt Day is specific to Canada and honors indigenous children sent to residential schools. 
Uh, as an aside, I looked into this on the Wiki on Wikipedia, and it explains that the National Day for Truth or Reconciliation, originally and still colloquially known as Orange Shirt Day, is a Canadian holiday to recognize the legacy of Canadian uh, Indian residential school systems. The use of orange shirt as a symbol was inspired by the accounts of Phyllis Jack Webstad, whose personal clothing, including a brand new orange shirt, was taken from her during her first day of residential schooling and never returned. The orange shirt is thus used as a symbol of the forced assimilation of indigenous children that the residential school system enforced. Back to Jessica's email. She says, I'd guess that oranges are very expensive to import thus far north and thus hard to come by. I'd uh, then go as far as to say... Uh, make the assumption that oranges were not something native cultures even knew about in northern Alaska until the white people started colonizing. The frivolousness and ignorance of these white hunters is exemplified by their purchases of these oranges in a careless way which are cared for them. Evangeline is literally throwing a symbol of forced assimilation away from her and it comes rolling right back. I think we're on to something. I I think that it still works in the... Uh, Godfather's sense, but like if you're Issa Lopez and you're researching, because you know this isn't her culture. You know, Issa Lopez is you know I think passionate about the indigenous woman thing and she's curious about it and she wants to tell a story. But this is not she's not telling a story about her culture. Um, I think if she's doing a research and she sees about Orange Shirt Day and she can take a, a like a Western motif of death and roll that into that, that's pretty fucking tasty. Yeah, I think the other thing that this orange stuff is doing is it's saying uh, Evangeline is trying to reject that that spiritual calling she's getting, but it's pointless. She can't reject it. It's just like her her sister did, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as it's yeah. the same, it's it's her polar bear. It's mm. it's the what the polar bear is to Liz, the orange is to seemingly both of the the sisters. I think it's interesting too the whole like the scurvy aspect that like the you know because I, I hear that the the natives in Alaska I could be wrong but this is this is what I've I've come to understood not only do they get most of their vitamin C through eating animals but they like cook a lot of things that like we throw out like the liver the liver is very rich in vitamins and minerals as something that they incorporate into their diet more so than like we consider it as like awful you know like that's like like, like that's like that's the that's the stuff of the animal you throw away like the brains the tongue the organs that's that organy meat that like only poor people eat right uh mm-hmm. i think that's there's there's something to all that and it's like the orange is a symbol of the outsider that she's trying to reject it's also the symbol of forced colonization and assimilation there's got to be something to some of these theories i think yeah Makes some sense. All right. Cassie B writes in, I think that when Danvers is on her phone and she says she's on Tinder or doing fantasy football, I think she's actually the fake Russian bride and is effing with Hank. I don't think those details were called out to further define Danvers personality. I don't know how serious she is, but I kind of love that yeah, Liz that is the hilarious. one catfishing Hank. <laughs> You're going to keep my department's records, Dick. Well, I'm going to invent a Russian bride for you to fall, fall on like this, a sword. Yep. Uh, then number two, Danvers has been pretending to hate Navarro to protect her from Hank. Hank knows what really went down with the Wheeler case and is holding that over Danvers' head, which is also why she can't properly discipline him. Danvers sent Navarro to the troopers so that Hank would not be able to mess with her and is pretending to hate her so that Hank doesn't go after Navarro to mess with Danvers. Navarro does not know that Hank knows and thinks Danvers actually hates her. 
That's plausible that like she's yeah. shielding her from, you know, but I, I don't know because the other thing I don't like about this is that Hank, I think, is the original police chief. And then Danvers got kicked out of there and kind of took over. So like, yeah, you know, how would he not know that they developed a really? Uh, yeah, that that's but I, I, I like it in theory. I just don't know if it's, it's going to work out in practice. Uh, Rachel from West Virginia says, I found myself enthralled this season of True Detective. I'm loving the mystery of the scientist and Annie Kay. I couldn't help but notice some similarities between the death of the scientist and an old Soviet cold case from the February of the 1959. The uh, Dyatlov Pa... Dyatlov Pa... I cannot say Dyatlov Pass. I want to say Pass. Dyatlov Pass incident. The particular cause involved nine student trekkers from a polytechnical institute that went missing during a hike. They were later found outside their tent, some without any clothes on, and all with various injuries, including missing eyeballs, fractured skulls, and missing tongue. It was a mystery for years. Why did they run out of their tent without clothes or shoes and sub-zero temps? Many theories abounded. Military involved, infrasound waves, animal attack, avalanche. At the time, it was concluded that a compelling natural force drove them outside their tent. Recent interest in the case led to new investigations. It's come to the conclusion that an avalanche caused them to run out of their tent and animals were the cause of the injuries to their bodies. I guess team rational for the win. Either way, it's an interesting subject if you wish to delve into it more. I We talked about this in a preview podcast. Like This is one of the main things that inspired this story. Uh, and I keep getting like four to six emails each week, so I want to talk about it again. I don't think there's anything more to it than like this is the real-life inspiration for you know mm-hmm. this, this event. Um... I will say that, like, I didn't read the avalanche theory. The theory that I read is that, like, essentially a carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide poisoning from their poorly maintained cooking gear got them all, like, you know, asphyxiating themselves. And then that plus the cold caused paradoxical undressing and paradoxical undressing. And then they died of exposure and animals preyed on their dead bodies. But regardless, you know, I don't think that it's just my opinion that sifting through that case is not going to give us the real answer to the, the, the killers here. You know, these are just, these are just something that inspired her to write this story. You know, that's just my, that's just my, my two cents on, it. I could be wrong, but that's one of the reasons I have kind of been skipping these. Cause we already talked about in a preview podcast and there's been nothing that I've seen thus far that, that connects the two other than the obvious inspiration there. Your thoughts, yeah. Jim? Ferris Bueller drove them all insane. So they ran out into the snow and died. Boom. Solved. All right, Derek from New Jersey. Uh, you may have touched already on this, but I keep going back to the opening quote in season four, episode one, being from Hildred Castigain, or Castain, rather. Uh, she was an unreliable narrator, and therefore I believe the investigators are all unreliable as well, especially Navarro, due to the water slash ancient bacteria theory. Thanks. Hope you boys are drinking Lone Stars and none of that fancy shit. Yeah, I've gone full circle. In my early 30s, I was a big fan of the hops and the sours and the cloudies. And now that I'm a, a, a an ancient 40-year-old, I've gone back to just, I like I like Paps Blue Ribbon and Miller High Life and that's it. I just I can't I can't drink a 200 IBU beer anymore, man. It's just, it's just not happening. I'm um, like Liz with beers. I rarely drink beer. Yeah, I I so I looked into we we talked about this before when the name got dropped, but like this repair of reputations is a short story pu- uh, p- published by Chalmers 
or Chambers rather, in his collection The King in Yellow that he wrote in 1895. Uh, it's an example of his horror fiction. Um, and it's one of the ones that contains the King in Yellow, which is why we're all a Twitter about it. Um, mm-hmm. The story is set in New York City in the year 1920, 25 years after the st- story's publication. So it's a sci-fi novel of its day. It's told from the view of Hildred Castang, uh, a man whose personality changes drastically following a head injury sustained by falling from his horse. He's subsequently committed to the asylum for the treatment of insanity by uh, Dr. Archer due to his accident. Hildred is a prime example of an unreliable narrator. This is going to come back to just head trauma. Yeah. The concussions and the blows to the head, which Navarro, not for nothing, sustained even more severe ones to this this episode. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm dead serious. I think that this is like almost a smoking gun. That this, this is the, the, the. Did she get like. Drunk driving, car accident, head okay. trauma. <laughs> it all got, it's all drunk driving and head trauma. Yeah, I mean, it's. I don't know. I guess if they examine her in the hospital next episode and say, oh, yeah, you have a massive concussion and you've probably had one for your entire life. I guess. Blue Sleeve says, after the second episode, I rewatched all of season one because I felt like I was missing a lot of the connected tissue Easter eggs. After this past week, I find myself starting to get a lot of lost vibes, beginning to feel like things will not really get answered and possibly not really connect with the exception of name drops and the same spiral imagery. My hopes, which is not likely to come to fruition, is that this season ends with a solid through line that kicks open the doors to a larger Tuttle conspiracy. Because after all, Russ did mention not getting all the bad guys in the season one finale. Do you think that all this connective Easter egg tissue is going to be red herrings, or will we actually get a tight, thorough line connecting season one and four to each other? Maybe this could even lay the groundwork for an end cap season five, perhaps a team up. Um, let's. I think this pairs nicely with the next email from Alexander. Jim, would you like to read that? Sure. Alexander says, thinking a lot about season one and how we know without a doubt that Night Country was written and then retrofitted. I think it's pretty clear these are just nods to season one. Maybe it's done to service theory craft. But I think Issa had Rose have a deceased lover. She just slapped coal on it. She probably had an arcane symbol, so she went with a spiral. It was likely going to be a crab factory, so why not Blue King Crab? Shady Shell Company behind stuff? Sure. Tuttle. Point being, it's not actually going to circle back, uh, and I don't think trying to solve for that is worth the effort. It's a standalone story and a heck of a good one. I think that's literally true. Um, The only thing that makes me not suspect it is that it... Man, it really does feel like a lot of the particulars of Liz and Evangeline are based on Marty and Russ. Um, But even then, it's like supposedly uh, um, Jodie Foster came in and reinvented uh, the Liz character to be more closely, you know, something that she could portray. So it's like, I don't even fucking know. But it seems like this makes a lot of sense what Alexander's saying. But like there are so many clear parallels between Marty and Russ and Liz and Evangeline, even down to their police encounters and how they're going about business that. Yeah, like it almost makes me think that maybe this this interview is a psyop and this was, was more tightly uh, planned on season one. But I I literally like, like if I'm being team rational, I literally think what they're laying out here is the truth that like there is going to be very cosmetic tie ins to the season. But, you know. Yeah, um, I'm starting to feel that for sure. I, I don't. Here's the other thing. I don't think it's a good idea to bust open a tunnel door. 
I just don't. I don't know. I, I'm not looking for that out of True Detective, I guess, to kick yeah. open the door and suddenly tie all these seasons together from Louisiana all the way up to Alaska. Yeah, yeah, and then do another few seasons to capitalize on the groundwork they laid here. I that's just not what I want from this inherent anthology show. Um, mm-hmm. The nods are okay. Here, here's what I think we're gonna get is we're gonna get unsatisfying. Uh, ending point for the spirit the ghost stuff they're not going to actually tell us whether these ghosts are real whether these people are insane whatever what we are going to get is concrete answers for how these people were killed okay the the mystery has to be solved because that's one thing they do in season one they solve the mm-hmm. mystery like yeah we know this person what the tunnels were people. up to yep yeah, we know how they were doing it, all of that stuff. We have to know how these people died. And if we don't know that by the end of the season, I think that's a failure of a murder mystery show. I agree. I do get the sneaking suspicion that this is going to feel much like Enemy uh, Lies Beneath. Or what was it? What Lies Beneath, much like Issa Lopez's other work, uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid. I think that like you could watch you could watch Tigers Not Afraid with a... With a skeptical hat and be like oh these are children having some shared hallucination off of some trauma and that this what really happened was this or that but i think isa and the film itself has a point of view that no actually supernatural shit happened and i think that's I true think this that's, as well yeah. i think that's what's going to go down that like you could be like oh well you know she hit her head and she's running low on vitamin c and she huffed a little bit too much psychosphere uh, and she's, <laughs> she's, she's losing she's paying $20 for Oreos has driven her mad yeah. <laughs> driving her yeah the, the Alaskan based inflation is just too much but like uh-huh. I think that the I I think uh, that the show's POV is going to be something supernatural's happened uh, yeah I, I think that's what it's shaping up to be but I also yeah. want concrete answers about how these people died I think we'll we'll get that too yeah okay so yeah the next one, Mike from Brooklyn says, I want to talk a bit about a win for Team Irrational and a trope that truly grinds my gears. So far, I'm absolutely loving this season. The writing's been exceptional, acting incredible. But they're definitely putting their fingers on a scale for Team Irrational this week. Danvers acknowledged that Navarro saw a ghost or spirit. Danvers is now a trope called the Natheist, which is a really common trope in Christian media. To be a Natheist, a character must be loudly and aggressively and performatively professing their lack of faith, but actually deep down know that God exists and is just angry at God for taking away something from them, usually a loved one. Mm-hmm. As an atheist, I find this trope extremely condescending. I'm not an atheist because of something awful happened to me. In fact, I feel incredibly fortunate. I won't necessarily go as far as a friend Russ Cole, but we and the world are just an evolutionary phenomenon and not the result of anything magical. It's another clear signal that the show will be heading into the supernatural direction. While I object to this overused trope in general, it won't deter me from enjoying the otherwise fantastic season of television. Got a atheist with a bit of a chip on the old shoulder, it seems. Uh, I'm with you. This absolutely feels condescending when they do this. Uh, as somebody who... I think comes by their atheism honestly, and and it's weird because if you look at my past, you could say, well, this guy definitely has a chip on his shoulder. That's oh, why he doesn't believe in God. <laughs> the the trouble with that is when I tell people I never believed in God. Yeah, I, yeah, I was part of a cult that believed in a God uh, so fervently that yeah, they they eventually cast me out for not believing, and among other things that for breaking the rules essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I never believed it. That's the thing. You, it, I just never felt like there was anything else there. So yeah, when when you say, oh, these atheists, you know, they protest too much. It's it's insulting. It's absolutely yeah. insulting. However, I absolutely know of these atheists. Like these, they walk amongst us. Like it is like I'm sure they exist, not yeah. you know like like people that are butt hurt by their experience of religion and people who are yeah. mad at God and like reject him because like I just like I you know I I I can't conceive of a heavenly father would actually behaving this way. That's different than someone who's just like oh I've looked at the evidence and it turns out this is all you know fairy tale type stuff so it's like i can't get too mad at it because i've known people that i you know just like we talk about dry drunks uh i believe on the instant take maybe we talk about this this uh, on this podcast i think there's dry atheists or dry theists which are white knuckling the absence of god and are terrified (laughs) to die and there's yeah so like i mean the reason this is a trope is because that's the most dramatic place to take an atheist to right the yeah. point where that belief system is challenged. And yeah. it just so happens that everybody who writes about this eventually wants to say, oh, yeah, the atheist is wrong. Because a lot of people, because the vast majority of people in this world, in, in the, this country, absolutely are Christian. And they, and you they have argue. the viewpoint of God exists. And so when they're writing something about an atheist, they're writing from that viewpoint. And you could argue from a storytelling perspective, a world with an act of God is way cooler and more interesting. You could argue it. Sure. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. For, for certain types of stories. So like I, like I said, I, I don't, I don't begrudge it. Like, um, and I don't, I don't even see it as kind of thing. Cause it's like, it's just, I don't see myself in that intro. It's like, you know, like some people get like really fucking offended when, when women start talking about all men do this or that or the other, I never feel offended. Cause like, I fucking don't. You know, well, it's the frequency of it, right? Like far more times the atheist is written like this than just somebody who doesn't believe in God. And that's a thing. And it's not their defining characteristic. Right. I mean, the way atheists are written about is much like the reasons people object to a lot of the writing around women in cinema, too. Right. It's because it's an unfair categorization and it keeps happening over and over and over again. You know, who's played a pretty well written atheist. Jodie fucking Foster. In the movie oh, contact. contact, man. Yeah. 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 You want to see scene? You want to see scene? How about a movie written by the an, an arch atheist? Uh-huh. That holds the holds the, his book's ideals. Anyway. How about a movie starring Jodie Foster on screen with Matthew McConaughey? McConaughey. Oh, uh-huh. that, there's the, there's your connection. There's your connection. <laughs> Young Russ Cole, before he joined the police force, he was a (laughs) traveling scientist preacher, man. Yeah, pretty much. All Uh, right, uh, let's go to the last email here, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gabe says, I wanted to write to see if anyone else picked up on another recurring uh, one-eyed face. We've seen polar bears, stuffed animals, and people with missing eyes. However, this one went unnoticed by myself until my wife pointed it out last week when we were watching. I know this sounds crazy, but if you squint your eyes while looking at the Alaska police patch on the shoulder of Danvers or her team, the patch vaguely resembles a face with a missing eye. Is this another one that I put because I'm just getting an enormous volume of this uh, from like week two and I keep on like, you guys are crazy. I'm not seeing it. Two things. I got tired of like everyone writing it in, so I'm acknowledging it. And the other thing is I noticed for the first time that smiley face, it's the patch on the shoulder. It's got a winking eye that looks like it's missing an eye. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm like, at this point, it's missing eyes all the way down. So you guys might be yeah. fucking right. This Alaskan police patch might look kind of like a skull with a missing eye. Is what I was most commonly. It's like a death's head with one eye missing. And so all these I don't see burned it. out eyes are the left side, like Lund and Otis and the except the for Holden who covers sickle. his right. That's the one exception uh, yeah. in this whole fucking deal is Holden covering. But, and the woman uh, at the the wake or whatever it was for the baby, her right eye. Oh, was it was on the wrong 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 side too. Yeah. Um, but there you go. So. There's your there's your one eyed theory rundown for the week. Mm-hmm. True Detective Ballmove.com is how you can tell us uh, about the Atlov Pass and the one uh, the one eyed patches and anything else you want to talk about. Uh, True Detective Ballmove.com. Follow us on all social medias at Ballmove. And again. If you're looking for ad-free feeds and extra features like the Instant Take, Instant Talk podcast, which, again, we're not doing this weekend, but we will be doing for the finale. You know you want in on that. You know we need your support. Support.ballmove.com uh, to, 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 to put, a little, put a little something in the basket. That's it for this week. Can't wait to talk about uh, the, uh, this, this next penultimate episode on Tuesday. And it's regularly scheduled for the full podcast. Until then, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.